0: The things that you tend to praise and reward in others and the things that you tolerate in others and the things that you correct or punish in others are all indicators that everybody else is looking at and interpreting to determine what the reality of the culture is. So you have to be very, very careful about this leading by example to have integrity with your word in every aspect so that you can build the culture that you say you want. Hello, and welcome to
1: The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Munchaus. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, If you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from fellow coach Mark Green. So I've known Mark for a number of years. He was an early influence on me as I became a business coach. And I followed his work. He's got books. His first one was called Activators, which is the CEO guide to thinking clearly and getting things done. And, And Mark talks a number of times today about the power of clarity. And his latest book is about creating a culture of accountability. As he says, it's really a 90 minute read. It's more of a monograph than a book, but it's, it's a how to guide, a field guide for creating accountability in your organization. So. Are there things in your business, problems you just haven't been able to solve? Have you got people being busy and you just feel the efficiency or productivity isn't quite where it needs to be? Well, it's likely that your business doesn't have a culture of accountability. So Mark walks us through the three bits that make up accountability, his definition of accountability. And we talk about some of the things that you could do tomorrow to improve accountability in your team or in your business or in your executive team, particularly the leading by example piece, which I was actually a great example for me is about the All Blacks where, you know, one of theirs is sweeping the sheds. And what they do is the All Blacks, some of the best rugby players in the world, themselves tidy up the changing rooms after every game. And there's a, there's a humility there and there's a not forgetting our roots, but there's just a humanity to it. And so as a CEO or a leadership team, look, if you think people should turn up on time for meetings and you don't, that's never going to work. So a great conversation with Mark. It's a real how-to into fixing some cultural issues in your business. I learned a lot. I had a great conversation with Mark. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.
0: Hi, my name is Mark Green. I am from Union Hall, Virginia in the United States. That's in the southwest corner of Virginia. I'm a business and leadership growth coach. I work with uh, high-performing, high-growth leaders who aspire to be better and more and scale their organizations uh, over time. I've got a couple of books and uh, do quite a bit of speaking on the topic and writing in addition to uh, maintaining a pretty active portfolio of coaching clients. Fab. Mark, it's lovely to have you here today. Are, have you always been in Virginia? No. Uh, we relocated from New Jersey, the New York metropolitan area, um, actually just last October. So pretty uh-huh. recently. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking last time we met you in New York. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. This has been a part of our plan. We've owned our home here for about a decade. And the, the, the long-term plan was to have it be you know, a vacation home until we moved down here permanently. And actually, the pandemic worked for us because we were able to effectively move down here through the pandemic. There's a lot more land in southwestern Virginia and and fewer people than there is in the New York metropolitan area. And so fortunately, we were able to come down here and do our remote work uh, from here. And so are you, are you coaching mostly remotely then? And were you doing that already? No, it's a hybrid. Uh, It's a hybrid now. Um, Again, the pandemic, I think, has normalized remote meetings uh, in a way that pre-pandemic would have been harder for my clients, maybe some of your clients to uh, agree to. But uh, my rule of thumb now is as long as everybody's okay and feeling safe, uh, anytime I have a full day with a client, I'm trying to do it in person. Um, And then anytime it's less than a full day, like a half day rhythm, that kind of thing, um, we do it remote. And that said, I have some clients who are full on, full remote all the time, and that works just perfectly well. Well, we
1: were on the we were on this morning with clients in the Philippines, and we've got clients in France and
0: Spain, and the US, Australia. So it's fabulous because um, you know you think about the idea of having to get on planes for that kind of travel, even domestically, right? Just within Europe for you, and the United States for me. It's prohibitive to have to travel a day for a one-day meeting and then travel a day back, um, and so this has really opened up um, access, I think, to um, practitioners like us from uh, clients in other geographies that otherwise really wouldn't have been on our radar. And do you? Are you? Is there a
1: certain type of client that you're attracted to, or that's attracted to you, or you have a niche? Or
0: yeah, I do. I do. So I'm I'm pretty firmly in the mid market, which here in the United States is businesses with about. 25 million to 400 million US dollars in turnover uh, or revenue, uh, depending on where you're from. And um, what I look for most specifically though, is the CEO who's operating the, the organization has to have a really hardcore serious agenda to create scale. The way I like to talk about it is they, they're so obsessed and consumed with creating scale that when you're talking to them about it, you can actually see the, the warm glow of the fire in their belly. That's the right client for me, that CEO. And are they, are they on that
1: scale journey when they pick the phone up to you or is it they've just sort of that they have this
0: expectation or aspiration to sort of hockey stick the business? It's everything. Um, it's it's everything along the way. I'll tell you what. What it's not is uh, turnaround. So my space is not. Hey, we're in a lot of trouble, and we need to bring you in as a coach to get us out of trouble. Um, that's not my space. Um, but everything else has come my way in terms of we haven't quite made the hockey stick, but we know it's there. Um, uh, that's one. Another one is, hey, we've been super successful along this hockey stick, but we feel like we're starting to come up against this ceiling that's really frustrating, and we've we got to figure out how to get past this, and every other variation uh, in between. And, but not startups? No. 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 Okay. Because they're, they're, they're not of the size. Um, so the thing that in- interests me intellectually is working with pretty seasoned leaders and teams and helping them grow from there. I don't need to tell you the, the the dirty little secret of coaching is the idea that we grow leaders, right? It's no magic. There's no there's no magic tool, you know, that if you fill out this form and create the this plan and and make this thing, you know, called a, a B hag or a three hag or a what hag, like magically things are going to happen um, because you can do all those things and and still fail miserably if you as a leader and your team as a team, don't continually grow in your own capacities over time. And that's the trick.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I'm not sure that people realize that on the start of the journey.
0: They think a couple
1: of tools is what they need. And it's like, okay, well, here's a couple of tools. And then actually the secret
0: is the team needs a bit of work, but they wouldn't have signed up for the team bit. Well, and, and I'm very forward with that. That's part of my conversation with the CEO before they hire me. And that's my conversation with the leadership team as a team on day one is, uh, let me be perfectly clear why I'm here and 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 what my goals are as your coach. Like it's kind of the the line from um, The Princess Bride. I, I love that movie. Uh, I know something that you do not know, right? <laughs> and And it's true because as a coach, when you're in front of a team for the first time, you know a lot of things that they don't know and it has nothing to do with the tools it has to do with what's required of the team for them to be able to achieve what they say they want and usually what, what we know as practitioners in that moment is very different than what the team thinks they need right and so i view it as my my it's like a sherpa kind of a role at the beginning especially to help them reframe how they're thinking about their situation and what they think is the path forward, to what I know, uh, is the path forward, and what's going to be required uh, for them to think differently to make that happen.
1: Certainly, in the UK, we've got soccer leagues and teams get promoted from one to another. You know, so I sort of often say, "Look, you're in the third division here. Do you want to be the top of the third division, or do you want to be in the Premier League?" Right? The team at ten million is often not the team at a hundred million. So what really is the aspiration of the CEO and the team? Let's be really clear. And do they, you know, cause sometimes people say, well, I just, you know, a bit bigger would be great. And I don't want to lose anybody. It's like, okay, probably not for me then. <laughs> not,
0: not the guy. Yeah, I'll go further with that and say, and you know, in my experience, probably similar to yours, I, I've never begun working with a client who within the first 12 to 18 months didn't turn over at least one member, if not more. Uh, of the executive team. And it's because um, with the rigor of thinking and accountability that we as coaches bring to the organization, you know it shines a bright light on uh, people who either become so uncomfortable that they choose to opt out um, or um, th- that they're asked to leave because they're they're not going to make it. And you know the reality is if you're a if you're a ten million dollar company aspiring to be a hundred million dollar company, the counterintuitive thinking of how to get there is, well, then you need to start acting like the $100 million company today because that's what will grow you to be that. And so then the question is, okay, so if everybody's sitting on the leadership team in front of me, who here has had uh, experience in your role operating in a $100 million company, right? And sometimes, by the way, the answer can be yes, sometimes around the room, but that's actually the right question. And that's the question that I need to plant in the CEO's head as as he or she is thinking critically about their team over time, because you know we have emotional entanglements. I mean, these are some of these people are people who we started the company with, we've known them for 10 years, maybe we vacationed together with them uh, and their families, and yet for us to get where we wanna go, we, we've sort of outgrown the person in the role. It doesn't mean that they don't have a place in the business necessarily, um, but we need additional capacity uh, or I'm sorry, capability. We need additional capability in the role to be able to continue to grow the business. And, and that's a tough thing for a, a leader to have to reconcile to overcome it. And I will tell you, you know, I, I hear very often, very often, relative to people moves in an organization, ugh, but I wish Mark, boy, I wish I we should have made that move 18 months ago. We should have, we should have taken her, you know, him or her out of the role and replaced them with this other person who's amazing. Like I should have done it 18 months ago. But do you know what you never hear, Dom? You never hear, oh, you know, I pulled this person out of the role and it was just too soon. We could have <laughs> used them for longer, um, right? And I wish they were still with us, right? But we 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 replaced them too soon. You never hear that. And, and I would encourage your listeners to think deeply about that and about why is it that we always hear the one and we never hear the other.
1: Well, I was, I was coaching... Some people this afternoon, and we were talking about their leadership team. And you know, I, I said, "Look, this is what Jim Collins wants you to think about. If they resigned, would you be would you be happy? And uh, would you enthusiastically rehire them, knowing what you know about them today?" And they're like, oh, uh, "No, okay, well." And then, so then we we moved on. Okay, so they've got to go. Well, we sort of knew that, but we were. You know, they've been around for a long time. What will the team think? I said, I don't know. Why don't you ask the team who they think the weakest member of the team is? Oh, they said, oh, we've done that. It's this guy. I said, well, then the team will say, why did it take you so bloody long? We told you ages ago, this guy wasn't up to it. And they went, yeah, no, you're probably right. And it's it's like, but as you said, you and I see this all the time, but for the person in that position, they feel really conflicted. And also I would say I have been in that seat. And I have fired too, I've taken too long to fire people. And, and so one of the things I help people with now is I say, look, rate this person for me on a scale of one to 10, and you're not allowed to use seven. Hmm. And then because sevens, sevens kill your business because sometimes they're just good enough and they're hanging on by their fingernails and there are seven. But the moment you say there are six, that's it. They're off the table. Or if they're an eight, that's okay. They're a keeper. They've obviously got some things that would allow us to feel like we want to invest or, or, you know, they're a culture fit and they're in the wrong job.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. So you started to talk about accountability and that one of the things that sorts the wheat from the chaff or the men from the boys or the women from the girls or whatever is, is accountability. And so talk to me a bit more about that. What is, what is that? And then why did you, we, then we can get into why you wrote the book.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, so the book is creating a culture of accountability. Uh, and I, I, I'll just start with, the, it, it all comes together. I, I, the reason I wrote the book is because I have yet to observe an organization of any size and scope anywhere on the planet in any industry who one way or another didn't have a significant struggle with accountability. And I view it as this universal problem. I think we talk about it a lot. I mean, if you were to do a hashtag accountability search, um, you would find an awful lot of stuff. But what was missing was how do we actually approach that? Like, what are the mechanics of creating a highly accountable culture? What are the elements of that? And how do we actually do that? And as a coach, I realized I had been doing this for years, but I hadn't quite thought about it that way. And so I thought it was a really good problem uh, to solve in uh, in a book. And by the way, it's a monograph. So for, for those, if you can see this, it's a book, it's not a book. And, um, <laughs> and it's written as the how-to, um, so it's a relatively light lift. I mean, the book itself is a 90-minute read, there's a few tools attached, but it's very um, how-to uh, focused. Um, and so it's an important problem to solve. And you know, if, you're, if the listeners out there are thinking to themselves, "Well, I'm not sure I have an accountability problem," um, you know, I would ask you some questions like, "So is that to say that the things that you need accomplished on your team are accomplished on time and without drama uh, on a regular basis? You know, does your financial team close the books?" Every month, on time, like clockwork, um, in a few in a few days, not 28 days. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. You know, again, in within within a let's say a week of the period closing, not two to three weeks or four weeks or even worse, which I've seen as well. You know, do you have persistent problems in the organization that are annoying and that you've tried to solve but they just never seem to go away? Because these are all symptoms of an underlying lack of accountability in the organization? Or as a leader, do you feel like, boy, I'm tired of having to be the person that just steps in to get stuff done? And again, these are all symptoms of an underlying problem relating to accountability in the firm.
1: There's a good book called The Road to Less Stupid. And in there, he says, are you begging your team to do the work you already pay them to do? Yeah, <laughs> it's like you yeah. know, or or that or that people say to do ratio is worse than one to one. You know, that's uh, often when I say that to people, they go, "Ah, that sums them up." Um, and we had a client here the other day, and one of their executives had seventeen objectives for the quarter.
0: Oh, that sounds achievable.
1: Yeah, well, because kept volunteering to do stuff that had nothing to do with them because it seemed interesting and because they were keen and voluntary people sort of
0: went yeah you can you can sure. have that <laughs> sure didn't get done though no when everything's important nothing's important right so what do you do then where do you start so the the starting place is to recognize what accountability is what i found with my client work is that when i start talking about accountability people tend to equate accountability with contribution, okay? So meaning that you know, if we've got a Project X, and Project X has mostly to do with marketing, right? That we're all gonna point to the marketing person in the room to be accountable for that project because they have the most expertise when we're picking who's accountable, right? And, um, and that's actually the wrong, the wrong answer. It doesn't mean that that person shouldn't be accountable for it, but that's the wrong mental model to equate contribution with accountability. Mm-hmm. To get to the to the root, you have to understand the the word accountable. The root of the word accountable is account. And if you look in the dictionary for where did the word account come from? It came from the word count. Okay? And which, by the way, is hysterical when you have this conversation with a CPA firm uh, whose job it is literally to count. Um, and they can't define the root of the word accountability, which is which is very funny. Actually happened to me a few weeks ago. But it's to count. And so I'm reminded then of the, the, the you ever heard the term a canary in a coal mine? Mm. Okay. And so for, for those listeners who, who are not familiar with the term, it, back in the 1800s, Um, the coal miners would bring a bird in a cage into into the coal mine with them. And the reason is birds are very, very sensitive to impure air. Um, And the bird would die uh, long before the impure air would affect the miners. And so the miners would know, wow, if the bird just died, we better get out of this mine because we're gonna be in trouble if we stay here, right? And so they called it the canary in the coal mine as the early warning indicator for miners. Now, it didn't end well for the canaries, but it certainly ended well for the miners, okay? and accountability is like being the canary in the coal mine without the dead part okay so you're accountable to 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 be counting and monitoring progress and and you know saying like we're okay we're okay we're okay up oh, wait that's late that's late oh wait we're not okay hey let's get together and talk about this and why we're off track and let's pull ourselves back on track here you don't actually have to be one of the people doing the work to be accountable for the work. Now, in reality, it's often the same, and that's okay, but it's an important distinction to make um, because, uh, for example, if if I'm a member of an executive team and I'm accountable for, let's say, uh, one of our quarterly rocks, a quarterly priority for the company, I'm accountable back to the executive team that that rock is going to be delivered to scope and on time. and I should be the one then at our weekly meetings or our daily huddles, our weekly meetings or our monthly meetings to come back to the team and say, hey, the status is green, 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 but this one area is at risk. And I think we need to spend some time talking about it because I feel like I'm going to need a little more resource in order to get this risk area done so that we can we can make this thing happen on time. That's actually being accountable. Whereas I think people think that being accountable means I got to go heroically save the project because I'm accountable and then come back to the team and just say, Yep, it's done. I got it done. And, um, and it's not thinking about it that way. So the first thing we need to discern is what is accountability, right? And, and it is accounting for the project. And that includes being the canary in the coal mine, the early warning system, so that you can cr- create the resources to course correct whatever it is you're accountable for, okay? The second thing we need to understand about accountability is it's not one thing. It's not one thing. There's actually three elements of accountability that are useful containers for a leader to think about as they think about creating a culture of accountability in the organization. And the three containers are role accountability, process accountability, and finally, leading by example. Uh-huh. And those are the three elements of accountability we need to understand if we're going to build a culture of accountability. So
1: where should we start?
0: Where would you like to start? I, I'm, I'm very passionate about role accountability. I mean, we can touch all three, actually. Um, so role accountability is about answering the question, what does the company expect in return for the investment it makes on your salary. So why does the company fund your role? Yeah. To achieve an, to achieve a return, right? That's not hard, that's not a hard concept to understand, right? We fund a role because we expect a return from the role, right? Otherwise, why would we be here? And so the question is: so let's take a role, let's take a um, head of operations for, for a company, right? A leadership role. Why do we fund the role of head of operations? And what are the outcomes of that role that are the, are the, the markers of the return on investment that, that we hope to achieve out of that role? And what role accountability does, what this process of thinking does, is it helps leaders very crisply define the expected outcomes from each of the roles um, so that there is no ambiguity of what each of the executives on the leadership team is accountable for, and then, frankly, ultimately, what every employee in the business is accountable for. Because this is a, pro- a process that starts at the leadership team and can cascade all the way through the organization by role. And so I like that
1: scorecard and then linking the scorecard to Because, you know, when people are discussing hiring a new person, right, you know, we don't have unlimited money, and therefore, we're, we're going to hire a small number of new heads. And you could say, well, it's going to be sixty thousand pounds for this head. Well, what do we get for that? People can get their heads around that. That's. It. But but then when you say, hang on, this business turns over fifty million, you're already here. Are you adding any value?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Much
1: more interesting conversation now. There's it's going to get emotional. <laughs>
0: And we're we're wired also, so part of the other thing that this clarifies in a very sharp way is we're wired to think in terms of activity, not, not results, not outcomes. And here's the hack, verbs cannot be outcomes. Nouns are outcomes. And so anytime, so if I was to ask you, okay, Dom, you're the chief operating officer, what are the three most important outcomes of your role? And you say, well, I manage our daily operation, I I keep our clients happy and I cultivate new supplier relationships. Now, by the way, sounds good. Sounds busy. Sure does. And the reason it's busy is because they're all verbs, right? They're all actions. Doing stuff. There's no outcomes. That's right. And so I would look at a chief operating officer and say, hmm, it would seem to me that perhaps, just perhaps, you're accountable for operating income, Net Promoter Score, which for those of you who don't understand is a that's a measure of customer loyalty, right? Operating income, Net Promoter Score, oh, and um, error rate, okay, which is a safety a safety measure, right, or a, a quality measure, not safety, uh, a quality measure, and and those are the things you're actually accountable for, right? Those are all outcomes because for each of those each year we can establish a target. Yep, right. And the target then becomes the goal, but the role accountability is, ju- is clear, even without the target, because it specifies the outcomes. And for a chief operating officer, head of operations, those are the outcomes that I expect in return for my investment in your salary.
1: You know, if you said uh, increase operating income, right, or increase net promoter score, it probably, would probably put a value on that. Error rate, probably put a value on that. Mm-hmm. Should be, and we should be able to get a return on the chief operating officer's salary. You know, three x, five x, something.
0: Yeah, we should get a return on everybody's salary in the company. And ultimately, this is a process that rolls down. And so, I do an exercise with the leadership team. And so, for the um, for the CEOs who are listening, here's here's an exercise for you to do. Sit your team down. Hand out, literally, hand out blank index cards, little three by five cards. Okay, and if you don't have index cards. Great, Hand out, cut, cut them out of a piece of paper and ask everybody in the room to put their, their their role at the top of the card. So there's no names. It's gonna say CFO or COO or CEO or head of marketing or SVP of sales or whatever your role is, whatever the role is, write your role at the top. And I want you to write three bullets, boom, 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 down the down the side. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a moment and think about and write down what you think are the three most important outcomes of your role that essentially generate the return to the company on why you're paid. Said another way, okay? How do you justify your salary? What are the outcomes that you produce that justify your salary? And have the team do that exercise. And by the way, as a CEO, you should do it too for yourself, okay? and what you're going to find is fascinating from a first go round. And this helps explain why there's a lot of accountability issue and, and and ambiguity and uncertainty in so many businesses, because what you're going to find is, first of all, half the room is going to be focused on verbs, not nouns, right? They're all going to be actions, not outcomes. So that's a big miss right there. Second of all, you're going to end up with multiple people in the room who think they're accountable for the same thing. Yep. And one of the rules, the cardinal rules of accountability is only one person can be accountable for any one thing, because when more than one person is accountable, no one is accountable. And, um, and so it's a really interesting exercise because for the CEO, it's going it's to show them how the team is really, even with good intentions and good people, they're out of alignment. Right. And so and because, again, this isn't an exercise to force people to justify their salary. Just to be clear, that's an artificial mechanism that I use to help them think about this in the way that's going to come up with the right answer. And it often begins this process whereby the team can start to think about this. And the CEO, even with some one on ones with their direct reports, can have conversation because just because the chief operating officer says these are the three, the CEO may look at that and say, well, I actually disagree. I think the first two are right, but I think the third one's wrong. I actually think it should be this. Is there one of three that's more important? Is that like, is, is there a number one thing? There's always a number one thing. There's there? always a number one thing. Your instincts are right. Um, so when this exercise is done and you've got the top three for the role, the next question is of the three, which is the most important one, right? You don't have to rank all three, but which is number one? You're right. And And then what we want to do is take the number one and then up in the top corner of the uh, card, put the KPI that measures that number one. Now, in some cases, the number one will be the KPI. Like if we said, you know, operating income, right? That's your KPI right there. But in other cases, the KPI might be slightly different than what it says the the outcome is, okay? Um, Because it's how are we gonna measure that outcome? And again, so what we're creating then is this clarity of accountability. And the idea is once we do this at the executive team level and the executive team not only creates these cards, but starts kind of living with this for a while, because guess where all those KPIs should be? On a dashboard somewhere. And guess what the CEO should be talking to the leadership team about individually in their one-on-one coaching sessions and all of this is the, the three most important things you're accountable for, right, over time when that process is is good, then we turn around and have that team roll it to the next level in the organization. And they turn around to their team and say, hey, we're gonna do this exercise around role accountability. Why do you get paid? What are the outcomes, right? And we do it again by role. And it's important to understand that this is by role, not by person as you go further in the organization. So for example, in an organization that has 25 salespeople, there's one role accountability card for a salesperson. There just happened to be twenty five instances of that role in the company, and so this is a process that's not as complicated as you think if you have a thousand person company because it's by role, not by person i did uh i
1: the for me the the nuances around the uh justifying the investment in the role, which I really like. I've done scorecards with people before, and I burnt in my retina as a conversation with somebody in an organization and he said um well, I spend about 60% of my time doing email so. Is that the most important thing on the card? And it's like, I don't think so. Is there anything you do that nobody else does? He goes, yeah. Yeah, I sign off all the projects from India. And if I don't do it by 11 a.m. in the morning, like all work stops in the factory and in India. I said, do you do it every day before 11? He goes, no, sometimes I'm just busy doing email.
0: He's yeah. <laughs> like, ah. Oh. What was that? What was the name of that book on stupid? Uh, (laughs) The road to less stupid. (laughs) Yeah, that that must have been out of that book too, because you know, (laughs) seems like it fits. So that's that's the deal with role accountability. Um, You can't create a culture of accountability if people don't understand fundamentally to what they are accountable, right? Do you then? Do you go a nuanced bit further because? Certainly, with the operating officer
1: with we were talking about, they were all lagging. Do you then do you finesse it and say, is there a leading indicator that lets you know whether that is on track?
0: that's so you're you're going you're going from um crawling to, to running to, to jogging, <laughs> right. right? without the intermediate steps, but yes, right. again, but but the most important thing, I cannot stress this enough, is outcomes clarity because then, to your point, everything else should be organized around driving those particular outcomes, right? But what ends up happening is we, we have all these indicators and KPIs and things, and we do like your email guy, right? Does all these emails and all the things that are important, but what's missing is the outcomes clarity because that's what their account, that's what the role is accountable to produce. Because, you know, like in the email case, which is very obvious, we'll stop emailing. Like, we can eliminate activities that aren't directly aligned with the outcomes that we're accountable to produce. And that becomes really easy to think about and look at when you're really clear on what the outcomes are. It's really hard to do if you're not clear.
1: Yeah. Somebody said to me today, he said, I I think I've got a lot little cottage industries all over my business. Nobody's doing this thing the same way. And it it completely eliminates all of that. Yeah. Because it sets up a framework for people to challenge each other around,
0: what is it that you're doing that we don't need to do? Yeah. Or the all the all the busy people. Which, by the way, so you're so it's a great segue. Thank you. It's almost like I paid you for this to segue <laughs> us into process accountability, Dom. Because role accountability is one thing. That's that's your functional role. Okay. But the reality is if you think about how work flows through your business, okay, work does not flow vertically through your business. So it doesn't flow, you know just within the sales organization or just within the operations organization or just within the legal organization, right? Or whatever, it flows horizontally across your organization. The workflow touches many or pieces of the organization as it goes, goes across, right? And, and any organization has a small number of core processes, maybe four to seven of them, okay? Um, like how do you source and onboard talent? Okay, that's a core process that cuts across the organization. How do you um, service your 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 customers, right? How do you how do you acquire a customer, right? That's a core process, and then how do you service a customer? And these are processes that cut across the organization, um, and so the role accountability doesn't quite stand up there. And to your point, you know, we've got a cottage industry where everybody's doing things their own way, speaks to me to a lack of process accountability, which means either we haven't clearly defined our organizational processes. okay, Or we are not holding people accountable to the organization process. And what's missing is an accountable person for the process. Process accountability, okay? And like I said before, when more than one person is accountable, nobody's accountable. So if you think about, for example, your process of servicing a customer, okay? Or let's say your process of making sure that from the moment of an, if, if, it's, a, if it's a widget company, uh, um, a, man, uh, a company that ships goods, the moment you receive an order to the moment the customer receives the order, right? That process, who, who owns that process? And what I found, and I'm sure you'll identify with this, is our <clears throat> processes in an organization are a lot like our closets in our homes, OK, every few years, I look at my closet and I think, golly, this thing is a mess. And I'll say, all right, I'm going to do it. And I'll take a few hours and I'll clean the whole thing out. And what I get is a spotless closet. Does it stay that way? It doesn't stay that way, because what happens? It'll be a spotless for a week or a month. <clears throat> but then over time, it's going to just build up more junk again, right, until I get sick and tired of it a year from now. And I said, "Oh, OK, let me do it again, Right. But wouldn't it be great if there was a way for me to continually put a very small amount of energy into my closet and keep it clean all the time? And I think this is how we look at processes in the organization. It's like the closet that gets to be a complete mess over three years, and then we have this giant process we gotta go through to clean it up. Closet debt,
1: you have to release the closet debt.
0: Yeah, it's a giant process and then it becomes daunting and we put it off because, you know, we have other priorities and all this stuff. But if you had somebody who is accountable for that process, okay, they would be accountable to make sure that it's kept clean over time. And it eliminates the giant clean up your closet exercise relative to your organizational processes because processes will and do change over time. That's normal. Because the world changes, your customers change, and your business changes over time. And instead of having all these workarounds, what we should be doing is just along the way, making sure we're able to adapt the process to the new reality. Again, in this analogy of making sure it keeps clean all, all over time, as opposed to having it become a total disaster and then needing to redo the whole thing.
1: Uh-huh. And in my experience, that, you know, we we've, we've put People like that in place in sort of matrix organizations, when we've built customer-facing pods or squads, then somebody's owned the sales process and somebody's owned the customer onboarding process. That's no longer a siloed team. And so it becomes even more important in that case. But it's one of those things as you scale, isn't it? That you know, the team's quite small, there's no churn, the process is where it is. It's sort of quite agile. And then all of a sudden we're now in two locations we're onboarding staff, we're training. And then it's just, it's broken. Somebody said to me, it's like a Doctor Who moment. You were very sure the company did this right. And it's like, somebody's gone back in time and broken the company. And you turn around and you go, and the closet's not actually where you thought it was anymore. And somebody goes, oh yeah, no, we stopped doing that ages ago. That's right. And you're (laughs) like, why did we do that? And like nobody knows. It's just, it just, no, because
0: nobody owns the process. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that reminds me of the story of uh, the newly newly married couple who um, the, the wife made a really, really delicious roast in the oven and the husband noticed that every time the wife made the roast in the oven, she would cut off both ends of the roast and she would throw the ends away and then make this roast in the oven, it was delicious. And one day he asked her and he said, you know, you make this delicious roast, but I'm just wondering why do you cut the ends off the roast and throw them away before you put it in the oven? And she said, oh, because, well, that's how I learned how to make it for my grandmother. And and the man said, well, that's fascinating. Why did she do it? And the daughter-in-law said, the daughter said, I, well, I don't know, let me ask her. And so they got grandma on the phone and she said, uh, so grandma, wh- why, do you cut, why did you cut the ends off the roast? And the grandmother said, oh, well, because my oven was this big and it wouldn't fit. <laughs> so, you know, and, and so we have these like rituals you know, whose origins we don't know or understand that then persist over time in the organization. And so exactly to your point, that becomes just part of how we do things without any concept of why. I remember working with a colleague, uh, a coach, and he said one of the
1: businesses he was in, uh, the finance team would uh, refuse to pay his expenses unless he wrote 22 in a box in the corner of his expense sheet. And he asked why, and nobody knew just didn't get paid unless you wrote 22 in the box. And it's just yeah. stuff. But you see, I used to think some of this, you know, like monkeys on the monkeys on the ladder and spray them with water or electricity. I, I thought that might be an apocryphal tale, but there is actually a piece of research. You can go and search for it. But then I, uh, the BBC reported on something that happened in on the Czech-Polish border. I think these sort of bureaucratic things, these rituals are very limbic. And so when they put the border through, when the Iron Curtain went up, they ended up with this fence going through the middle of a forest and it split a herd of deer. And then 30 years later, they take down the border again. And so the forest is now open and they put GPS trackers on the deer and the deer don't go over the old border. And it's 10 generations of deer. So no deer has ever seen the fence. So it's, it's very, very sort of deep in, in our psyche to pick up these things and then not question them.
0: Yeah. So you ready for the third element of accountability? Yeah, please. Leading by example. And I would actually argue of the three, this is the most important and the starting point. Have you ever been in a situation where you worked for somebody who told you how it should be, but then themselves did it a different way? You ever had that experience? Oh, yeah. How's that work out, Dom? <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> you're not so motivated to do it the way they you say they should do it.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and um, what leaders need to understand is that just by virtue of the fact that you're sitting in a particular role, everyone's eyes and ears are on you all the time. The burden is very, very high. It's not like you're just somebody in the middle of the organization who comes to work every day and does your job and goes home, but rather you're in a role where everyone is looking at you and everyone is listening to you all the time and what I mean by this and leading by example is it's not just if you say we should all be on time to meetings, okay? Leading by example isn't just you showing up on time to meetings, but it's in front of other people are you tolerating when other people don't show up on time to meetings, right? And so it's not just are you you exhibiting the behavior yourself, but what are you tolerating in others because that's what's visible to your team, right? And so this idea of leading by example really requires some thought, because if you're going to build a culture in the organization, you got to realize that as a leader, your behavior, meaning not just what you do, what you say, but also the things that you tend to praise and reward in others, and the things that you tolerate in others, and the things that you correct or punish in others are all indicators that everybody else is looking at and interpreting to determine what the reality of the culture is. So you have to be very, very careful about this leading by example to have integrity with your word in every aspect so that you can build the culture that you say you want. Oh, well,
1: there's two things, I think. One is just turn up and look at a, a, attend an executive meeting. And you can probably describe the culture of the organization because that's how powerful the shadow that gets cast by the leadership team is. And then all those things about, you know, sometimes I'll be working with the leadership team and they'll say, oh, we should, uh, we should have a turn up on time for meetings policy. And it's like, really? None of you did. Don't set yourselves up for failure.
0: Yeah. I just wrote an article on not culture of accountability specifically, but how to build a sustainable culture over time in an organization, I disclose the process I use to help leadership teams build behavioral integrity with their core values. And it's a big miss for a lot of organizations. I will not let my clients roll the core values to the rest of the company to actually launch the core values, if you will, until as their coach, I am satisfied that the leadership team has behavioral integrity with their own core values. And it's hard to do because there's a lot of self-awareness around that. And they have to be interacting as a team to give each other feedback over a period of, usually takes a couple of months, frankly, until I get to the point where I feel like, okay, you're there. And it's not just the behavioral integrity, because what that then leads to is they really buy into and appreciate the value that the values add the va- what yes. the culture brings to them as a leadership team, what it helps them do so that when it comes time to roll it to the rest of the company and they say hey we're gonna do this, they're saying more we're doing this as opposed to oh here are our core values translation well, we hired a coach, he helped us do this and like it's like I'll, I'll wait and see if it works but you know we're gonna we're gonna roll this all out And we know how that ends, right? Because again, the rest of the company is looking to the leadership team for behavioral integrity and for clues as to how, to how to behave. And so this idea of leading by example is critical if you want your people to be accountable to your core values. Again, you got to lead by example.
1: Mark, that's great. That's, it, there's, there's real clarity in that. And also why, why so many of these culture initiatives fail. Quite often when people are making decisions, I actually say, okay, I want you to go round and I want you to say out loud that you agree, right? Because I don't want people to be going, I don't agree, but I'm not going to say anything.
0: It's like, yeah. it's part of that. Like, let's commit. It is, it is. And I, and I warn my clients in advance. I have a, I have a couple of um, what I call dogmatic coaching zones. For most of what I do, probably just like you, like I, I'm happy to have my clients take a concept, figure out how to make it theirs and, and run with it, right? Because that's, that's what I care about because uh, it's all about their growth. But there are a couple of zones, and creating core values and culture is one of them, where I say up front, listen, this is a dogmatic zone. I'm going to give you a highly rigorous, highly prescribed set of steps, and this is how we are doing this, because there is not another way that's going to make this work. And it's a study around behavioral clarity and then behavioral integrity, and that's how it's done. For businesses that say they're serious about building culture, it's just required, you know? And I can point to clients, a lot of clients, all my clients that have like amazing cultures and it's because they took these steps up front to do it the right way. Very good. Mark, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? So I'm at a point in my life now where I am, I would say I'm happier than I've ever been. And it's a result of, recognizing about 15 years ago that I was in an unhappy place some of that has to do with my relationship at the time has to do with how I was showing up and how I was being at the time even how I was physically at the time um, I just was not happy and you know you don't understand what it's like to be happy until you're truly happy like I, I thought I was happy back then but I didn't really understand that so the thing that I wish, I knew was how freaking awesome it is to just be happy and to do the things that I need to do to get there, to be there. It's the same thing. Like we said before, nobody ever says I did that too soon, right? They always say, I wish I would have done it longer ago. And that's that I'm grateful for having made the transition and being where I am. Don't get me wrong. But that's the thing is that the recognition about how powerfully wonderful and amazing it is to truly and authentically be happy and to figure out what are the things that are, that are in my way that I'm not admitting or not acknowledging or not willing to deal with that make it so that I can't quite get there. And if I could have done that sooner, I mean, that, that's the thing. That would have been awesome. What comes to mind is a, a phrase that Alan Weiss
1: uses, which is, he says, I'm always amazed how stupid I was two weeks ago. And it's, it's just that constant growth on a journey as you say, no regrets.
0: It's just like, ah, could have done that earlier. That would have been fun. Yeah. I had a, I had a client meeting this morning and we were talking about this, the rip off the aid idea that, you know, it's, it never fails. The thing that you're most afraid of, or the thing that you're dreading the most is usually the highest value possible thing that you could do right now. And yet, what do we normally do when we're afraid of something or we dread it? We find all the reasons in the world to put it off or delay or, you know, whatever. And just, it's a universal life thing. It's not just a business thing, right? But that's an indicator that I think we need to be more in touch with our emotions and to recognize like, hey, wait a minute. Like if I'm fearing this or hesitating around this, I'm having that feeling for a reason. Therefore, this is probably important. And so how can I think about this in a way that honors the fact that it's important? as opposed to just feeling the emotion and then letting the emotion dictate our behavior. Very good.
1: Mark, other than activators and the culture of accountability, what's had an impact on you? Or what are you reading now? Or what should other
0: people read? So I'm going to go old school on you here. Okay, I'm going to give you uh, three, four books So the first is the book that changed the trajectory of my coaching practice, which was Pat Lencioni's book, Getting Naked. And if you're in any sort of a professional services business, this is a great book for you to read because it cuts to the heart of, I think, what holds a lot of professional services people back. So Lencioni's uh, Getting Naked, I'm a big proponent of clarity and thinking, trying to get the junk out of our heads so we can think really clearly. And a woman by the name of Annie Duke, who was a professional poker player, very successful professional poker player, wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. And it is just so amazingly clear. And she draws the lessons from her uh, poker career to just decision-making in organizations. And it's just an amazing book for clarity and rigor of thinking. The third one I'm going to recommend is around self-awareness. It's a book called Insight by my friend Tasha Yurik, and it is a fabulous book for leaders in particular to give you a glimpse into some of the research and to increase your own concept of self-awareness. And if you're a growth-minded leader, self-awareness should be on your radar because that's the thing that creates either the blind spots or the insight. That gives you uh, the impetus to be able to grow. Fantastic. They're brilliant. Mark, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Dom, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me.